Welcome to Recovery Radio by Landmark Recovery with your host, Zach Crouch. In this program, we'll discuss the root causes and treatments of alcohol and substance addiction, speak with experts in related fields, and help navigate the road to recovery. Now, here's the host of Recovery Radio, Zach Crouch. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Zach Crouch, host of the Recovery Radio podcast, your internet radio destination for addiction and recovery resources that save lives and empower families. Do you know someone addicted to drugs or alcohol? Perhaps you've been struggling personally and are looking for resources and expert guidance. Recovery Radio is here to help. We are dedicated to providing you with the necessary tools to inspire a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, or loved one to take the first step on the road to recovery. Joining us today are Colgan Tyler and Norma Thomas. Colgan earned his master's in social work from San Diego State University, it's a lovely place, in 2005 and obtained his licensure for clinical social work in Louisville, or in Kentucky rather, in 2009. Mr. Tyler's psychotherapy treatment specializes work with young males, adult men, and women and families in crisis. Mr. Tyler's work focuses in the areas of anger, addictions, shame, depression, and anxiety. Using an eclectic approach, he has given clients that he's seen the space and support to tell their own story, guides and witnesses them in self-discovery, and really does collaborate to change elements within their realm of control. An important part of mental health treatment is being seen by and building a relationship with a present empathetic, and trained professional. In addition to this work, Mr. Tyler performs evaluations for families involved in legal immigration proceedings. Colgan is fluent in Spanish as well as English and uses his language skills in multiple modalities throughout his practice. Norma is a licensed psychological associate who holds separate master's degrees in counseling as well as organizational psychology as well as an associate degree in occupational therapy assistance. She enjoys providing psychological evaluations for clinical, educational, vocational, and legal purposes. An example of that might be immigration cases involving extreme hardship, asylums, uh, things like that. She is an Army vet who is fluent in English and Spanish and has had various professional experiences that have enriched her perspective on human behavior as well as insights that help others with their journey toward more meaningful lives. She joined Mandala House in Louisville, Kentucky here in 2016 because she shares the organization's commitment to providing compassionate, accessible, as well as informed mental health services to all persons in the community. Colgan, I've known you for a while, and Norm, it's it's, it's a pleasure to uh, meet you through the airwaves here, and I'm really just happy to have the both of you here on the show today, and we're incredibly gracious to have you on as guest. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. So uh, just, you know, kind of jumping right into it for our listeners who are unaware, uh, what, what, is, what is Mandala House? Well, Mandala House, uh, Zach, is a, it's a mental health treatment center uh, near downtown Louisville that was started in uh, 2016. Um, we offer... Uh, psychotherapy, so talk therapy, uh, psychiatry, and psychological assessment. Um, we're also offering, uh, coming up in the next month, a, a neuro-optimal, which is a neurofeedback um, oh, cool. treatment as well. Um, but we, yeah, so we are um, multimodality, uh, uh, various professionals who've come together. We're all uh, under the same roof, and we practice all as, as one practice, Mandala House. And we... Um, what kind of makes us unique is we um, kind of like practices of old. Um, we spend a lot of time collaborating on cases with one another, uh, sharing uh, ideas. We do study group together. Um, so we meet oh, for cool. a couple hours a week formally and yeah. uh, get together and discuss cases, but then also just sort of uh, theoretical orientation, uh, different approaches, um, ways of, ways to assess and approach cases. Uh, approach cases. Um, so we see people 14 and up and uh, been coming in on our second year now. So it's been going Congrats. great. And uh, yeah, thank you. That's fantastic. That's, that's something in- interesting that you brought up. You, you operate sort of old, uh, out of old school sort of processes. And, 
And uh, that's that's a very interesting way to put it. But explain to our listeners what exactly the benefit of having that sort of cross collaboration between disciplines in a mental health space. How is that helpful? Well, uh, I would say that you know, just really speaking from personal experience, um, you know, any of us left to our own devices without any kind of uh, you know interpersonal interaction, uh, we can we can make a mess of things uh, just as people. And so, you know, therapy um, can be, so as a, as a practitioner, um, you know, we can, uh, you can get to where, you know, if you are just in a room meeting with people all day, um, that you can also develop kind of your own ways of, uh, of thinking that, um, that also could use some uh, freshening up or some different perspectives. And uh, uh-huh. so, if you have the opportunity to, you know, some time carved out once a week uh, to actually share your experience of just being a therapist, share your experience with clients in particular, certain cases, yeah. um, also things that people are reading, new research that people are finding, all these kinds of things can, um, um, you know, can maybe weed out some, some faulty thinking uh, directions that you may be taking with patients. Sure. Um, they can, yeah. you know, add add some new... Uh, and add some fresh ideas. Good stuff. And 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 in your experience, Norma, just with uh, you know, as as Colleen Tana alluded to, and, and and this is kind of true, I think, among private therapists, do you find it to be at times kind of isolating, just being in a room, you know, day in, hour in, hour out, and and you really really don't probably see too many of your colleagues during the day, or maybe you do. Well, Mandala House. That's the what I really love about it. Um, there's this sense of camaraderie um, that exists. And so even for lunchtime, there is an area where you can sit down and talk to oh, others. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so it, you never really feel alone. If you step out of the room, you're, you have good company. That's fantastic. What a great place then. That's wonderful. It really sounds like a, uh, uh, a place that's kind of counter to... And, you know, to your point, uh, Colin, kind of, you know, counter to uh, traditional sorts of places where people have practiced psychotherapy in a solo practice, which uh, is often, you know, the case where they don't see too many people. And uh, I hear that I hear that so often. So that's really wonderful stuff that you guys are doing over there. What what specific experience uh, do the both of you have with working uh, in the Latino population? Well, um, I, you know, my, my experience has been uh, really started with kids working with, uh, with youth in, in Southern California. Um, a lot of them were first, uh, first-generation immigrants. Um, some had, had uh, been born in, in Mexico, mostly in Mexico um, and in other places in Latin America, but was working with young people. Um, and some who were adjudicated, um, some, you know, just families doing basic social services, um, a lot of boys who were, um, who were living and, and, uh, being sort of drawn in by gang life and, um, uh, boys mm-hmm. without fathers, uh, which, uh, happens quite a bit in the Latino community, um, uh, in, in the area, at least where I was working, um, where there's, you know, quite high poverty, um, yeah. That, um, so boys were, you know, either brought in uh, for a diversion program um, for skipping school or, or being drawn in um, to to gang life. Uh, that yeah. was really the first introduction I had, and so I, you know, talking in Spanish with the parents, and then speak, uh, you know, and then with the boys in English, um, and then went to. Um, I did some social work, uh, you know, in Spain, uh, working there, and this was kind of a whole separate uh, issues. Um, um, and then came back to Kentucky uh, and started working, um, doing immigration work uh, with different immigration attorneys that I know. Um, my brother being one. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that was working, doing evaluations and assessments for people who were in the uh, immigration uh, uh, either visa change process or deportation process, so mm-hmm. doing various types of assessments. Um, yeah. And now I'm doing um, just uh, private work uh, with yeah. uh, Mandala House is still doing the immigration uh, work, uh, the assessments, and that's what Norma is doing 
um, I'm seeing uh, some uh, clients yeah. right now for individual therapy in Spanish mill. Sure. Well, you know, you and, and Norma, I really want to hear too, just in a moment. But I had a I had a quick question. Norma, I want to hear about your experience in working with this population. But Colgan, the question that came up for me in my mind was. You mentioned, you know, with with the young men that are growing up in that population, uh, they're they're exposed to at a very young age uh, gang life, right? And uh, can, can you talk a little bit more about that to our listeners in terms of what you know? What are the benefits that that these young men sort of uh, are provided, you know, when they when they join into a gang? Well, you know, from what I could see and what they told me, uh, I think just very basic um, things that, that all human beings need and young people need, um, which is a, a family life, um, mm-hmm. a, place to be- a place to belong, um, a place for, you know, where young men can kind of prove themselves um, yeah. you know, in front of yeah. one another, um, where uh, they can, of course, be admired and be seen and be looked at um, and... Those are all, you know, pretty basic things. They, you know, uh, is it, a lot of them, is again, it, didn't have fathers. Uh, They've been in, maybe in, in yeah. kind of multi-generational gang situations. Yeah. So um, yeah. uh, so they're, they're trying to fill in with get some of that raw material that they can't yeah. uh, maybe find in their own home or within their own families. Would you say uh, just, just within the within Latino uh, culture, uh, compared to uh, you know the the culture that we experience here in, in Kentucky and the United States for that matter, among young men is it is it is it more important there in the Latino population to as you put it prove yourself right uh, than it would be over here if you're a young man coming up. You know, and normally you may you may want to also uh, jump in. I I you know I, I again I try to see these things as um, and and I really you know tried to work with the boys is, you know, they're, they're human beings and they're doing what, you know, what a lot of, um, what a lot of boys do. I think that of course it can go to where, um, um, you know, the things that are available to them and the ways to prove themselves, um, uh-huh. um, get, uh, get to where they're, uh, they're not healthy, sort of right. certainly the adaptations that they are making to their particular situation are mm-hmm. not healthy adaptations. Um, sure. and so the culture is, is, you know, um, certainly, especially in the, um, in places that have been uh, experiencing like in Honduras or El Salvador have experienced uh-huh. quite a bit of natural disaster, civil war over years, economic, uh, oppression, um, that, um, certainly a lot of, uh, culture can can develop from that um, right. that um, doesn't give boys you know healthy opportunities to grow norma um, I'm with Colgan I mean I I can't really speak to the literature that differentiates between um, you know boys that join gangs or sure. of Latin American descent versus other boys um, but maybe some of the reasons that may drive them may differ. Um, so for a boy be trying to become acculturated and finding himself stigmatized and discriminated against, he may look for groups that provide um, you know, a sense of being, a sense of belonging that he may not find in the uh, mainstream culture. Well, and they're probably also getting money too, right? I mean, they're they're getting things, resources that they normally wouldn't be able to get from family sometimes, correct? Or a lot of the time. Right. Um, yes. In, in terms of being able to find employment and being able to retain it. Sure. Yeah. And and you know, kind of to that point. Uh, gosh, I mean, it, it's 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 uh, you know, parts of Mexico uh, are very poor, and uh, if if you have the opportunity to make three times, four times, five times what you would make in, in a given day doing some illicit activity, uh, you know, and, and survival is the key of the game, then my question would be, you know, sometimes why wouldn't you do that, right? Pretty much, especially when the future looks so bleak if you are a law-abiding citizen. Yeah. So, Norma, tell us about your experience, though, working with the Latino population. What's that been like for you? Well, it began um, 
during my practicum while completing the master's level program requirements. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I became the point person for scheduling adults, adolescents, and children and families um, for treatment. It's pretty much for anyone who had no health insurance coverage uh, because okay. we provided it uh, free of charge. Um, and it also involves working with adolescents in the school system um, you know, to work on social skills. After joining Mandela House, I have continued to work with the uh, Hispanic Latino population uh, providing therapy, but it's also included conducting psychological evaluations for different purposes. Um, during my time in the practicum, I was shocked by the suffering of many people in the community and the few resources available to them. And, you know, I just wish yeah. to be, remain a part of the solution. Sure. You know, kind of given what we've discussed, particularly as you brought up COVID with the, uh, the, with the Latino young men, uh, you know, do you see some of that, uh, a lot of that coming over from, um, you know, from Mexico with, with the younger guys and, and, and men in general who have been enculturated in some of that? Um, <clears throat> and have you treated, you know, former gang members uh, here in Kentucky who have come up, you know, from uh, the South? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the answer no. Here in, in Kentucky is no. I, I've been in, um, you know, various mental health clinics since I've come back here and uh, to Kentucky. In San Diego, I was working more in a social service uh, type of agency, uh, and mm-hmm. they had grants and uh, different uh, programs uh, where, um, you know, immigrant families could use, uh, for instance, to get... Um, they could uh, bring their their son in for uh, anger management, or have a uh, there. There would maybe be a group, um, and that was more of a social service agency. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, uh, and so the answer is no to, to working with young men involved in, in gang life uh, in, in Latinos. There's truly in Louisville not much of that that I know. Um, um, the uh, mental health, and, and I know that Norman and I will speak to this maybe a little bit uh, more later, but yeah, the, the, the kind of the formal mental health settings that I've worked in, uh, the Bingham Clinic being one, and, and then my own mm-hmm. private practice. Um, yeah, the Bingham you know, Clinic it, being a, a child guided center downtown in Louisville, Kentucky. Right, right, and child adolescent, yeah, mental health, and, and the. So you don't find as many, um, you know, immigrant families who do not have, typically do not have um, insurance, um, um, even uh, even government insurance, uh, being able to access or really being willing to access maybe the more formal uh, mental health care settings. Sure. Um, so they're coming, they're coming to maybe more churches or social service agencies, which. I've not been, uh, you know, part of a social service agency um, since I've come back here to Kentucky. Um, it's been more, uh, more clinical mental health. Got it. Got it. Uh, question uh, to both of you. What? Go ahead, Norma. No, I was just going to add. In terms of adolescent boys, um, the experience that I have had uh, with them, um, you know, there was one instance where I was working in a school with. Um, students who had recently immigrated and who uh, were getting services in the school system to increase their English level proficiency so that they could attend their local schools. And when I would have these sessions and we would open them with, you know, an icebreaker and introductions, they pretty much changed the questions around to three basic questions. And it's, you know, what's your name? Where do you come from, and what do you do? It's not what's your favorite sport, what college do you, do you think you'll attend. Right. None of that, because employment for them is a very important factor um, and in their personal identity, and being a contributor to the family's finances to them is very important. So, yes. yeah, it, in my, from my experience, I have not seen the, the gang behaviors. It's been more this. Um, foregoing pleasures and uh, other things for the sake of the family. That's very, that's, that's very interesting point. And and thank you for that. 
uh, I guess, you know, Norma, in terms of uh, working within the population, the Latino population, what have been the challenges that you've experienced while working uh, with this population? Um, well, there's usually the co-occurring uh, disorders such as mood and anxiety, um, just as it would with the rest of the population. But there's also the added trauma in, in their history, um, which is approximately about 15% of folks um, that we would see. Um, but unlike other groups, 15% they are have trauma or 15% are Latino that you all see? Oh, 15%. So of the Latino folks that present for therapy, about 15% would typically present with trauma, okay. if not more. It's just sometimes they don't recognize it. Um, but yeah. then, um, unfortunately, they are significantly less likely than whites to delay or forego needed treatment. Um, if they do seek treatment, they are more likely to drop out. Um, yeah. My experience has been about 50% attrition. So, um, you know, it's not very encouraging. Wow. And, and, and that's a very interesting point. So just in terms of, you know, uh, as compared to like a Caucasian or just, you know, non-Latino population, people that do present with, you know, trauma issues or identify them as trauma issues uh, in your practice, if it's, if it's not Latino, are you seeing rates of maybe 60 to 80 percent that have trauma and present with trauma? Yeah, you would see more likely like 70 percent um, being able to, you know, 30 yeah. percent attrition, 70 percent will stick it out, but um, not so with these folks. Um, but often, as Colgan alluded to, it's the issue of not having insurance. Um, yeah. Many live <clears throat> in poverty levels, so, and they have so many other problems that just keep them from being able to keep their appointments. Got it. And Colgan, similar, similar kinds of challenges or different? Well, sure. I, I think that, um, you know, there are, from what I know, that, you know, there are pockets, you know, in Latin America speaking, you know, geographically, you know, pockets where there is, where, you know, there is, has been a lot of psychotherapy activity or it's, you know, in, in certain places it's maybe more, uh, uh it's, more normal um, to to, mm-hmm. to have it as part of your you know um, culture uh, within your city maybe within your area but you know by and large uh, from what I know you know about the uh, Hispanic culture is that it's it's really not been as normative you know uh, to know about and use you know psychotherapy um, yeah. uh, as you know as uh, you know a form of healthcare sure. and so I think that that you know that in itself um, yeah. is you know just the awareness of it, uh, just the acceptance within a family to say you know um, yeah this is we have a word for this and this is you know what you know, uh, where you can go for that. Um, I think that that's it's um, it's complex and it's uh, you know not not uh, so I, I would think that that has something to do you know, also with how much, uh, how frequently people access it, how, you know, uh, they're uh, being used to it, staying in it. um, And one factor, no idea how much, you know, as far as a percentage, how much that plays into it, but certainly a cultural factor is there. You know, what what are the, uh, it's become sort of a, in a good way, I think, uh, sort of a pop culture term uh, in, you know, self-care, okay? And it's, it's been around, you know, if you're in the helping profession, it's been around forever. But uh, is that, you know, is that term, is that, you know, act, that, that sort of discipline, I guess, that discipline of self-care, is that, is that an appreciated concept within uh, the Latino population? Norma, you want to take this one? <laughs> okay. Silence. Um, yeah. Well, it, it is an interesting question, um, especially because of, you know, the way they that many operate, at least in the first generation, with familismo, you know, family first. Um, Latinos do tend to be highly group-oriented, and the family model includes, mm. you know, grandparents, aunts, and so forth. Um, and so there's a sense of pride of belonging and obligations um, in these families. 
So when one speaks about self-care with a client, um, they're typically thinking about spending time with family and going out with families when one is not working. Um, okay. But then in terms of um, the familismo, there is that... Uh, it's been that, that term that um, has come up, which is the immigrant paradox, um, where Talk about that. Research, yeah. Have, yeah, that research has found that uh, first-generation Latino immigrants who typically have experienced much greater hardships than uh, you know, their non-recent immigrants here um, tend to have better mental health status, healthier lifestyles, uh, lower mm-hmm. levels of substance and drug use and uh, decreased level of, you know, engaging in criminal activities. Um, But those who have resided in the U.S. 13 years or longer um, then have the increased risk, like everyone else, of experiencing uh, mental health problems. So the strong ties with family provide a protective factor um, in a way so that even though the term self-care is, kind of different at the same time, it's helpful to them um, in terms of, you know, protecting themselves from mental health risks. So just, you know, with with the whole idea in mind of self-care, what what are some of the biggest issues you notice that Latinos face, you know, regarding their own sort of self-care? Typically, it's Funding, I mean, funds, if, if you live in poverty conditions, it's very difficult to have, um, you know, many You're ways You're trying to of, survive, right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, jobs, especially when, uh, if undocumented, you know, the jobs may not always be there. There's that instability. So they're always looking for work. Um, so yeah. taking care of self is basically finding a job and keeping food on the table. What's the, I mean, just yeah. in your experience so far working with, uh, hold on just one second, Colgan. So just in terms of like the average, you know, workload that a, that a Latino uh, that you've seen come in with who comes in for therapy, who needs some help, uh, are, are, are these guys and gals, are they, are they working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week? Um, so it depends. Um, you know, in some instances they may have, so those that work in construction, this mm-hmm. is their busy season, so you might find the you know sixty right. eighty hours a week um, in other periods of time it may be slower, so then they're out seeking other types of work um, for many moms it's basically watching their children, but um, you know life in the u s is costly, so they too have to find sure. ways of taking care of family and working and uh, so that adds stress to them as well. Colgan, you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say that, you know, it's, I think that, you know, a lot of these things can be seen in, you know, you know, many populations of people who are living without resources. So, you know, health outcomes are going to be, you know, worse for any person uh, mm-hmm. living in poverty, of course. Um, and uh, so the stress is going to be higher uh, so that, you know, uh, food and, and, and diet and how, um, what we do, uh, with our time and, and, um, how much time there is to, to take care of, uh, oneself. There's, you know, those things can really be seen across any, you know, population that's, that, uh, of people that live, um, in poverty. And, right. um, so the added challenge, you know, for, I think Latinos is, you know, they have the added, you know, challenge of most of them uh, don't have, um, especially if they're not refugees, they don't have any kind of um, health insurance at all. And so there's a lot of um, stress, you know, um, reactive, you know, maybe type of living. There may be, you know, sort of, okay, deal with the situation, you know, uh, as it comes up. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, that, that takes a toll on any on any human being, um, but when you don't have uh, resources um, besides maybe the emergency room um, uh, to fall back right. on, um, and and the you know the added um, maybe stigma uh, or just not mm-hmm. being aware mm-hmm. of where um, different uh, maybe self care uh, places for self care can be accessed or yeah. okay well what's it what's it like for 
someone of this generation, you know, uh, Latino parents may be okay with bringing their, you know, bringing their son or daughter in uh, because the yeah. son or daughter knows people who may uh, access mental health services, but maybe the older generation are not. You know, they're not. Um, they don't feel okay in doing that. Uh, they're not as used to, uh, to to taking care of themselves in that way. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, there's certainly a, a um, especially if they've, uh, there's just, there's the added cultural factor, you know, on top of, um, uh, of just dealing with poverty. Yeah. It, it, you know, kind of, to kind of button up the topic a little bit, just, I mean, we kind of bounced around a little bit with it. W- what would you say a therapist or even a lay person, you know, wh- what would they benefit? Those two people, you know, the therapist or even, like I said, a lay person, what would be the benefit for them from knowing more about, in regards to these unique challenges that Latinos face on a daily basis in the United States, what would, what would be the benefit for them? Well, um, you know, I, I so so the benefit of um, knowing more about the challenges, the benefit mm-hmm. for them of knowing Correct. more. Well, I think that. I think that generally we all can benefit, you know, as a human race if we uh, can empathize with one another. Uh, and so Agreed. I think that, you know, working working with the, you know, just for instance, starting to see people, you know, as people, uh, understanding that not all Latinos, you know, are the same and they don't all come here for the same reason. They don't all come from the same country and they don't all come um, uh, with the same story. And so I think generally sort of slowing down um, and, um, you know, seeing the pixels in the, in the picture, you know, the individuals uh, can just help generally. Um, uh, I think it's, of course, a benefit to, to know mm-hmm. people and to know who lives in your, in your neighborhoods and in your city. Um, I think it makes for a better, a better life generally. Um, so, you know, that, that's, a, that's something that just, the benefit of having um, more empathy, you know, in your uh, uh, rather than sort of uh, maybe fear and uh, you know isolation, uh, misunderstanding. Um, it may, in the short term, maybe may think uh, people feel good about themselves or safer or something like that. Sure. But really, it's a it's a losing game for everyone. Norma, um, uh, from my perspective, you know. If we look back to our early, early ancestors, uh, the ones who had to go in the woods and hunt and, uh, you know, eat uh, whatever fruit and flora was available, um, being suspicious of what was strange and what was different was important in order, you know, for survival purposes. Um, But, you know, we're in a different period of time with different circumstances. And unlike what we are told by our president... You know, adult Latino immigrants and the young ones, they do have positive attitudes about hard work. They're driven. They have high aspirations. Um, Although they may suffer from discrimination and social oppression and systematic inequities, all in all, if you speak to them, you'll see that they trust U.S. institutions, especially coming from places where, you know, all their uh, different institutions uh, don't work. Um, and while they value collectivism, for the most part, you see them striving for self-sufficiency. So really, the enemy is not our neighbor. Our neighbor is representative of the other immigrant groups that have come to the states before us. And so that's from the layperson's sure. perspective. Um, from the mental health care, well, you know, within the practice of psychology, the code of ethics um, principle of justice indicates that uh, you know pr- practitioners should exercise fairness and justice uh, mm-hmm. to ensure that they are not leading or condoning unjust practices. So, understanding these folks when they come through the door uh, should enable us to be better practitioners and provide better services. Good stuff. Excellent. So kind of switching gears a little bit, um, Cole and I understand that besides, you know, helping a lot of men, uh, adolescent men for that matter, as well as adult men uh, and women, you work a lot with families in crisis. Um, what, are, what are the kinds of crises that you see that you help these folks overcome? 
Well, first of all, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to give a plug to Mandala House here, uh, just because I think that you know we we work with you're a allowed lot to of do families that. in in crisis, <laughs> and uh, we work with a lot of families, and it's really has been uh, I can't tell you how much better uh, um, as a clinician to do the work, and I think we are doing better work for families um, if we are able to see different parts of the family system. So. For example, um, families may come in because um, they have a son who is uh, displaying, you know, concerning behavior, maybe um, uh, antisocial or or um, uh, aggressive behavior uh, that uh, is marginalizing him, uh, you know, from the from the school group, uh, from his peer group, and uh, potentially threatening members within the family, community members. So that could be an example of a family that's in crisis because there's one member of the family who um, is uh, usually showing a lot of the symptoms of what's wrong, you know, something that's uh, problematic in the family. Sure. Um, but nevertheless, there's one person who's sort of raising, uh, the, the, you know, the symptoms to the level of, okay, we all need, you know, we need to get help. Now, in a place that, you know, like this, we can, you know, see parents separate from the child, um, but also, you know, and so one person seeing the, the child and other, uh, you know, members seeing the parents, uh, and then maybe a third practitioner is seeing them all together. And that ability to be able to slow things down and have conversations is what you really need in crisis. Um, so yeah. that, uh, uh, you know, that's maybe an example and an example of kind of what we can do here um, is uh, if we can put language to to things where there's just acting out or just emotion, um, then uh, we feel like we have a chance in trying to, to heal. And, and you know, you, you talked about uh, the symptoms and, and uh, you know, what, what kind of gets brought up in one member shows you know, the symptoms, it's a larger systemic issue that's going on typically, you know, within the family. Uh, how do the dynamics of therapy change when, when you're helping just a sole individual uh, compared to the families that you treat in therapy? Well, well um, in, oh, you, you, yeah, you want to answer that? Go ahead. Norm, if you're ready, go um, ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say that you know, when you're looking at a family um, and the family dynamics, um, you have also the intersection of culture and generation gaps and so forth. So um, yes. that complicates matters in family therapy. So the generation mm-hmm. gap manifests by the level of acculturation of, you know, younger folks um, and older folks, whereby you know, you'll see clashes between the older and the younger generation uh, due to, you know, younger folks adopting the mainstream views and mm-hmm. the older folks pushing back. Um, there's also the need to take into account the level of acculturation with regard to language. So you say, oh, here's yeah. a Latino family, yeah. we're all going to speak Spanish. Actually, no. The, uh, many kids do not speak Spanish. They may understand it. So they have the receptive yes. language for it, but so you're going back and forth speaking in, you know, two different languages. Um, sometimes uh, older folks may come from uh, very desolate parts of some of these countries where they speak indigenous languages. So Spanish mm-hmm. is not even their first language. They're speaking something else, and you're trying to decide what's going on. Um, and then there's also the issue of you know, language is not just um, a means of expression, but a form of thinking and experiencing. And sometimes, even amongst bilingual folks, um, you may find that they may may prefer to speak in Spanish when talking yeah. about intimate subjects, um, which which uh, with which they feel more in touch with, and then uh, may speak in English when they want an emotional distance from distressing material. So even they may switch back and forth um, between the two languages. Um, and then there's the issue of, you know, family, uh, not necessarily meaning just folks that are related by blood. Uh, so 
if if the family's Catholic and they had someone baptize the child, that person becomes an integral part of that child's uh, not just their religious uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, bend, but also their education and so forth, uh, becoming this compadre or comadre, uh, who, which literally translates to um, co-parent, basically. Um, so, yes, it's, it's a little more complex than just individual therapy with one individual um, and being able to sure. work those pr- issues out. Yeah, you've got to bring, if you're a good practitioner, it sounds to me like you really need to, you need, you need to really account for all that to, uh, to, yeah. to do effective therapy in order to uh, be successful. And uh, how quickly do you determine, you know, on the outset uh, to include the family in the process, uh, either, either, you know, by phone or in person or uh, how does that work? What's your thought process around that? I'll defer to Colt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I th- yeah, I, I don't think it's a matter of, um, you know, uh, as one of my colleagues here says, the urgency is the disease. So I, I don't think that <laughs> there's great. necessarily any any urgency to doing uh, an assessment of um, when or you know if the family should be involved in therapy or not, uh, sometimes it does emerge very quickly, and sure. that um, you know maybe there is a a um, some sort of a crisis um, and the family does need to be involved. Say, for instance, if the child um, you know is self harming or you know is a risk to 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 uh, for suicide, something like that. Of course, the family would need to be. Uh, brought in very quickly and consulted uh, if it's if it's an imminent risk. Um, mm-hmm. Other issues uh, may may take a while to come up. So what you know what someone comes into therapy for is yeah. not necessarily um, the 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 larger issue. It, again, it's a it's a symptom, and so the family um, it, it may be determined. Okay, well, let's maybe have um, a conversation with the parents, and maybe they would want to talk to someone, and then. Down the road, we could have you know family sessions together. We can we're able to do that uh, here. It's a real frustration to work in a place, and I can tell you from experience where you can't where you don't have that. Um, and it's a you can you can feel overwhelmed as a as a clinician pretty quickly. Right. Uh, you've got Absolutely. a lot of moving parts. You know, a kid who needs you know help uh, needs family involvement, but there's really no other place where you can kind of uh, a practitioner that's close by that you can collaborate with. Uh, so um, it, uh, but yeah, yeah, to answer your question directly, it's, it's, it really is uh, not a quickly thing. It's uh, a, a matter of um, what comes up in session. You know, you both, both of you guys have experience with understanding human behavior. It's just, you know, it's part of your, your, your sort of your, what you do, uh, you know, you have to in order to, I think, become effective in this. Uh, but how important is it, you know, understanding the human behavior uh, for individuals who pursue professions like you, like what you have both done? Well, um, I think that you'd find that many of us here, and I would say many people in the profession generally, um, have a real uh, fundamental curiosity and interest in how you know, human beings uh, behave, how we've evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's almost like uh, an anthropological standpoint from that, from that, sure. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think just trying to understand as, as, as much as you can um, about the human story generally mm-hmm. um, can, of course, inform you, you know, sort of on where we are right now. And then, you know, that's the context that the person uh, is living in <laughs> that you're seeing sitting in front of you. That's right. the context that they live in, um, and um, how do people typically behave under you know uh, under stress? Uh, um, um, you know what's their family pattern, uh, and how do they you know, have they behaved? You know the people that they've seen behaving under stress, um, uh, and so uh, you know the, all of those things, of course, you know are the context for the individual that you're that you're sitting with, and. Uh, if yeah. you don't have a curiosity about it fundamentally um, and an interest, of course, you know, as a compassion for people generally, but 
Yeah, an interest in learning more about it, I think, that, uh, that you can be lacking. Do you think that uh, the longer that you stay in this and, and, and you really start to dig into understanding human behavior and you come to a better understanding yourself of why people do what they do, is there a spiritual component to all this that you find uh, either you know, uh, in, in your own life or just among the lives of people uh, that you work with? A spiritual component that I find? Yeah, after, after it, you know, it could be something where you either are sort of desolate and you're just kind of like, man, this is just, this is rough. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no spirituality or, boy, I've seen five miracles this week. Uh, and uh, I know for sure that there's something bigger than me at work. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, again, trying to understand the human experience and and of course spirituality is is a part of that and a part of um you know of human experience i think we you know we um you know we're kind of uh uh hardwired for that and and sort of uh, are looking for meaning all the time mm-hmm. and um and so people find their meaning you know in a lot of in a lot of different ways and certainly collective um Spirituality is one of them, absolutely. And, uh, 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 of course, people find um, a lot of alleviation from suffering in, you know, within that. Um, some people find um, suffering within that. Um, and, you know, depending on the institutions, the experience they've, you know, they've had. So um, I, think it's a, sure. I, think it's, I think it's mixed, and I think that we're, we're still wrestling with, with that. Um, and uh, but you know certainly uh, spirituality is a you know, it's a big it's a broad topic and it's not the same thing for everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that you focus on a lot is is uh, the aspect of the self in your work, and that you guide people through self discovery and and being mm-hmm. not in the Christian sense of the word, but certainly a witness as they tell their own story. Uh, do, do you ever have to intervene to help, you know, folks get through their story if they get confused or shut down or, you know, almost a sense of despair if they have that? Uh, well, yeah, certainly I think that the people that, that come in are, um, yeah, are, are, uh, you know, their stories that they've been living, um, the way that they've been getting through life, you know, isn't working anymore the ways they've adapted um and they you know um certainly uh you know if they come in depressed then that can be sort of a way that they, you know it, it's kind of having them sit down and not be active in life and and but really uh, they're looking at their life uh, they're looking at themselves and trying to figure out what their what their story is um and I think that we can try to use language to, you know, be with them first of all, and and use language to try to help them find what that narrative is. Um, yeah. So instead of acting out something In, within their language, um, not ours, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, and it's why it's really so fundamental, you know, to the conversation about Latinos and 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 in the the mental health care because language is such a big part of that. It's such a big. It's a fundamental part of what we're all doing in mental health care is to try to find, try to find language for experience. And um, Latinos and people who are non uh, non English speaking, you know. Uh, really, of course, are having a struggle with that, you know, experiencing things that they sure. don't have language for, which is what, you know, all, a lot of us, uh, you know, we, we, of course, we're lacking for language. Um, but then mm-hmm. when you are in a, in a country where you can't express um, with the few words that you do have, you can't express to someone, you know, what it is you're experiencing, it's even more isolating. So, yeah. The you know of course people feel isolated when they're coming in uh, to, to to therapy they're they're experiencing something they don't necessarily um, have a story for yet and we uh, we we do we try to sit with them and help them find that. It's great. Uh, you know, I just uh, really really pleased and uh, it makes me feel very uh, very happy uh, to know that the Mandala House is there. As as a resource uh, for for folks who who need to be heard, 
and 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 be treated. Uh, Norma, any any final thoughts before uh, before we wind down? Uh, pretty much. I mean, Colgan has pretty much said everything I was thinking about. Um, you know, in some instances with our folks, uh, because um, some have suffered, you know, severe trauma, it sometimes means basically rewriting the narrative, changing the narrative altogether, and that's hard work. And then also um, viewing yeah. this whole process as one of, you know, where realistic changes must meet, or realistic ex- expectations um, should be kept in mind that mm. with re- in relation to change, because sure. change is a process, and we fall back, and we get up, and we fall back again, and, and it's the issue of being compassionate and patient to see that client through. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure speaking with the both of you uh, today. And, and I can honestly say this, I've learned a lot over the past uh, nearly hour that we've been talking. Uh, and it really has kind of refreshed uh, my approach to uh, how I, you know, how I see myself, how I see others uh, in, in our culture, uh, and especially within the Latino population. So thank you for, for everything that you've shared uh, with us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for enjoyed having it. I just want to thank uh, thank you all again, and I hope all of you have enjoyed our podcast. If 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 you know someone struggling with an addiction and are searching for answers, tune in to Recovery Radio on Fridays for the most up to date information from leading therapists, doctors, and addictions experts. You can listen anytime through the Voice America site or iTunes, where you can subscribe, rate, and review any of the Recovery Radio podcasts. So before signing off, I'd like to ask, does someone you love need inpatient or outpatient treatment for addiction? Maybe you or your loved one needs drug and alcohol rehab. Visit LandmarkRecovery.com to learn more about their innovative substance abuse programming that is saving lives and empowering families. Until next Friday, I'm Zach Crouch with Recovery Radio, wishing you a great weekend and wishing you well. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Recovery Radio. New content for this program is available every Friday with all episodes available on demand here on the Voice America Variety Channel and through our content partners, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to create quality content to help save 1 million lives in the next 100 years. You don't need to struggle through addiction alone. Live the life you dreamed on the road to recovery.